Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of Better Off. Today, we've got Felix Salmon, the host of the Slate Money podcast and the editor of CauseandEffect.fm. If the stock market goes down, what does that mean? It means rich people get poorer. That's actually okay. It also means that if you are working right now and if you're saving for retirement, you're really happy because all of those stocks are cheap and you get to buy them cheap. And it's much better to buy stocks low than it is to buy them high. Anyone who is still working and is going to be working for another decade or two should love it if stocks go down. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. We are delighted to have a special guest today, Felix Salmon. He is the editor of Cause and Effect. He's also the host of a great podcast called Slate Money. Felix has a long, great career. I've been following him for a while. He worked at Portfolio.com. He was a blogger at Reuters, senior editor at Fusion, and now is the editor of CauseAndEffect.fm. He covers a number of different areas in financial services. He is delighted to be the curmudgeon and the guy who takes the other side of an argument. I invited Felix to come on the program because I was quite taken with some comments he made about what the goals are for any corporation. Because Felix and I have so much to talk about, no call this week. Don't worry. We'll go back to our calls. Remember, every Tuesday we've got the bonus call of the week. And next week we'll get back to having those calls at the end of the interview segment. And here, without further ado, is Felix Salmon on the Better Off podcast. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Felix Salmon, editor of Cause and Effect. Felix? Hi there. No, give me the hello. No, I can't give you a hello. Give me a hello. I'm not going to give you a hello. Please? The only people who get the hello are the listeners to Slate Money. I'm a listener of Slate Money. So listen to Slate Money, then. You'll get the hello. <laughs> Uh, Felix is the editor of Cause and Effect and the host of Slate Money. You may have read his byline way back when from Reuters, although you don't look old enough to be a way back when kind of guy. I'm, I'm, I'm older than I look. No, I, I, I've bylined for many places. Reuters was five years, though, I worked for that place. It's an eternity. An, an eternity, yes. Don't you love his accent? I do. Felix, we start the program off with a very important question. You ready? I'm never ready, but I love important questions. Best financial decision you've ever made? Oh, I have an answer to that one. This was in 2001, and I was working for a newswire called Bridge News, which was shortly to go bankrupt, and they fired me. And um, it was all, I was in a bit of a, you know, that state when you're unemployed and you worry that you might have to leave the country because you're out of visa status and that kind of stuff. And what I did with the zero money that I had was I went out and bought this shiny new titanium MacBook Pro, the very first MacBook Pro, which was the titanium one, the silver one. It was super sleek and yeah. it's, it's, it's like it's in MoMA. It's yeah. one of the most amazing sexy. machines. It's very sexy. And I decided that this was going, you know, I was actually going to do this thing of freelancing and I took it down to Chile to go to a conference of the Inter-American Development Bank. And that machine not only sort of made me friends, because I think it was the first MacBook Pro in Chile, but it also just drove my entire career for about seven or eight years after that. And I used to tell people over and over again that like the best thing you can do with a buck is to 
buy an Apple computer rather than buy Apple stock. Now, I think in hindsight, buying Apple stock might have been quite good as well. But it was this productivity tool which really made my career for years. I like that. I like the like the investing in the human capital thing. Yeah. That's a good deal. And also, like the one thing I, I try and tell people, although they never listen to me, is that having a good, fast computer pays for itself in a million different ways that you never really notice. And people are incredibly reluctant to upgrade their computers for reasons I never quite understand. It's not that expensive compared to like your total annual expenses. And you shouldn't consider your computer to be, oh, I bought this three years ago and it was perfectly fine then, so it should be perfectly fine now. Just feel free to upgrade your computer. It makes you much more productive and much happier. It's, it's worth it. Felix, why did I have you come on the show? Because you know so much about so many things. You're also sort of a, a contrarian slash curmudgeon, curmudgeon, which I love. Yeah. You like curmudgeon better? I mean, I, I don't think I'm smart enough to be a contrarian, but I'm definitely a curmudgeon. Okay, excellent. You are have the lens of a European. You were born where? I was I was born in England. I have UK and German and American citizenship. I have you had three to marry into that, huh? Three different citizenships, um, but there's only one of them which I have any particular sort of pride in right now, and that's the German, which was not something I ever really expected. <laughs> How do you have German through citizenship? my mother? Aha! Uh-huh. I basically grew up with her in England. She okay. she um, met my dad in California, but then they brought me up in in England. And that's why you wear these fabulous cufflinks, which you should show Mark on your way out, because on one side is the German flag, on the other side is the British flag. Yeah. And yet you're not wearing a U.S. flag on your lapel or anything. I, I don't have an American lapel pin. Weirdly, I, I feel like my run for public office is doomed. It's all done. One of the things that you have maybe have like that European lens around is this idea of corporate responsibility as well as the notion that you can be a company and not just care only about your shareholders. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. So Germany's really good at this. If you look at German companies, they always have a bunch of worker representatives on the board. If you look at Germany's parliament, the Green Party is a very powerful force. It's not just a bunch of like environmental kooks that no one listens to. And it is just generally understood that companies have a wide range of what, you know, Davos types love to call stakeholders, which is one of my least favorite words. I don't really understand what it means. But ultimately, when you're in charge of a company, you are responsible for a bunch of different things. And if you talk to entrepreneurs, especially after a couple of drinks, you know, what they will say is it was all fun and games when we were small. And now I realize as the owner and CEO of this company with X hundred employees, I am responsible for families. I'm responsible for feeding children and keeping them housed and getting them through school and this kind of stuff. And it's a big, important responsibility. And there's this idea among certain types of stock buyers and stock market watchers in America that CEOs really shouldn't feel that responsibility to their employees and that all they really should care about is their shareholders. And I think that's trivially false. It's not just the employees. You know, you've got various vendors, people who you buy stuff from, who rely on you and you should treat them well and you shouldn't do mean things to them. If you you know, if you want a long term relationship with them, you should trust each other and you should be able to say your vendor if he's been 
selling you something for the past 20 years. You know, you don't just cut that off immediately. That kind right, because I got a cheaper deal from the guy down the street. Exactly. Mm. So there's a bunch of different things. And then underpinning the whole thing is we are the stewards of this planet and we have to look after it. So when you're running a company, you do have to weigh out a whole bunch of different responsibilities that you have to the various different companies and individuals that you're connected to. It's not just about your balance sheet and the shareholders who have claim on the residual profits after your debts paid off. Like, yeah, I mean, fine, they're in the mix somehow, but they shouldn't be above everything else. So I blame one person specifically as the cheerleader of that bad trend, and that's Jack Welch, because I found him to be the most obnoxious cheerleader for quote-unquote shareholder value, as if nothing else mattered, that you must put your shareholders before all else. And I've always found him to be, sorry, Jack, I'm sure you're listening to the podcast, I always found him to be full of crap, because if it was all about shareholder value, then you wouldn't have done half the crap that you did. It was about how did you enrich yourself? And maybe you're a shareholders along the way, but you know he sort of took obscene risks went to places that that company never should have gone and also like couldn't care less about seemed to me didn't care a lot about the employees or the communities in which his various campuses were located so yeah so they called him neutron jack because he would explode these neutron bombs basically outside the various offices of general electric and the buildings would remain but all of the employees would be vaporized and you're like that's not good and then, obviously, he turned GE into a incredibly leveraged bank. And then the minute, minute the financial crisis blows up, it needs to get a massive government bailout. And none of this is good business. None of this is good for the planet. And I guess it was good for Jack Welch, who managed to reinvent himself as some kind of corporate guru. But yeah, no, I'd really rather not. And you don't see that, honestly, in places like Germany. And so when we talk about some of the U.S. companies that are trying to sort of do good, there is this um, this thing called a B corporation where like an Etsy is like, we're doing good. What is that whole so, thing? So the one which people probably know the best and which has been around for the longest as a B corporation, B corporations are relatively new, is um, Patagonia. Ah, yes. And Patagonia is founded and run by a guy who more or less has this German-style idea that you should look after your employees and your vendors and your factory workers and the planet and, yes, also your shareholders. He doesn't have a publicly listed stock, so that makes it a little bit easier for him. Um, But, yeah, a bunch of people do own the company, and all of these people understand that they have a bunch of responsibilities to a bunch of different principles. And so they run the company according to those principles. And they reckon that if they're true to themselves and true to their principles, the company will do just fine. Obviously, different, as you said, for a private versus a public company. Although even private companies, these unicorns, I mean, we can just look no further than Uber can do some really awful things as no, private no companies one, No too. one is saying that, that private companies are inherently better than public companies. And in fact, the opposite could be true. And one of the interesting things about public companies is when you go public, you start having much more of a public profile. And you find that on the CEO councils and places like that, 
it's the CEOs of the public companies who tend to start standing up for the environment and stuff like that before the CEOs of the private companies do. I want to shift gears for a second because we're talking about stocks, but as an asset class, you're not a great fan of the stocks. <laughs> oh, as an asset class, I am a fan of stocks. You like the stocks. I, as an asset class, I think that stocks ultimately give you the is is ultimately the asset the only asset class which will give you long term significant positive real returns. Okay, so now let's talk about how there are some people who still believe that they can pick the best stocks out there. Can they? Yes. I, I mean, let's say that there are a thousand people out there who believe that. Like statistically speaking, probably one of them, through luck or judgment, is going to be able to pick the best stocks for whatever your time horizon is. I mean, right now is interesting. In 2017, if you look at the actively managed funds, at least when it comes to the big cap companies in America, most of those actively managed funds are outperforming the stock market. And people are going, oh, look, active management works. It's like, well, it works for the first eight months of 2017. As, as you increase that time horizon to two years or five years or 10 years or 20 years or however long you expect to be invested for, the number of managers who can outperform just shrinks and shrinks every year until eventually it basically reaches zero. And what's fascinating is that it seems like you can put that kind of research in front of people over and over again, and still they want to believe that there is some wizard behind the curtain who can tell you how to get to Oz or get back from Oz, that they want to believe that there is something more to investing than buying an index or an index ETF. Why is that? Historically speaking, if you look at the people who were invested in the stock market, they were basically 50-something white guys who played a lot of golf. <laughs> if, you're a 50, if you're a 50-something white guy who plays a lot of golf, just by dint of the fact that A, you have enough time to play a lot of golf, and B, you have enough money to play a lot of golf, you have too much time and too much money on your hands, right? And investing in the stock market is for those kind of people... It's a hobby just like golf. And it is, it is expensive just like golf. And it is pleasurable and it makes them happy just like golf. And if they didn't do it, they would have more money. They would be better off financially, but they enjoy it. And no one gives them grief for spending a whole bunch of money to play golf. And I, in a weird way, I kind of don't give them grief for spending a whole bunch of money to invest and to lose money on stupid stock picks. If they want to do that all power to them. It's a hobby. And people need a hobby. And fine, they have a bunch of money they can lose, they can lose it. I personally have zero interest in either golf or picking stocks. And I know that as a hobby, if I take up a hobby, I'm going to choose one which is a cheaper and be more fun. Uh, speaking of which, you took up baking? Is that right? <laughs> I'm beginning to get into baking. It's true. I really? have a really, really delicious... Tata de Santiago, it's mm. called, which is a three-ingredient cake. The three ingredients are almonds, eggs, and sugar. I love those three. You basically, it's the easiest thing in the world. You take almonds, eggs, and sugar. You put them all in the blender, bush it up, yep. pour it into a tin, put it in the oven for half an hour, and that's it. Really? But baking is more of a science than an art, eh? Baking is, yeah. I, I just got this book which goes into 
unbelievable detail about using instant read thermometers to work out what the temperature of the water you're using in when uh-huh. you're kneading the dough. And so like, I'm just dipping my toe into that, but I can do that. I have an instant read thermometer. I feel like when it comes to art, you know, I'm not so sure I can get it right, but I feel I can follow instructions. You have a lengthy and um, old relationship with the the great Mr. <laughs> the Mooch. Scaramucci. Anthony Scaramucci. Now, wh- so how did you, so first of all, what is it, like you guys got into it a while back, right? The very first year I went to Davos, which is this ridiculously stupid conference which happens in Switzerland And you still January. go to that? Every year I say it's my last year, so I, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not going back. Of course, but you will. But you never know. They do drag me back. So the very first year I went was like major financial crisis zone, and a bunch of people were very careful not to do the conspicuous consumption thing Mm -hmm. because it would look bad. That was when everyone was changing their kids' bar mitzvahs also. Well, let's not have it at this place. We'll go a little bit downscale. Exactly. And so into this conspicuous consumption void, there there used to be this big wine party, which was thrown every year by this thing called the Wine Forum. And then they decided to cancel that because it looked bad. Mm. And the mooch heard about this and said, I know what I'll do. I'll come in and do the conspicuous consumption by... A gazillion dollars worth of incredibly expensive wine, pour it for all of my hedge fund friends, and then no one else is doing the conspicuous consumption thing, so I will stand out. Uh-huh. So he did that. Okay. And I wrote about his party. Okay, but wait. When he, called, at yeah. that point, what was he doing? What was his job then? At that point, as at every other point in his career, his job was to promote Anthony Scaramucci. He's he's basically only ever had one business, which is Hmm. self-promotion. But yes, at that point, the self that he was promoting was this fund of funds called Skybridge, which he had recently bought from Citibank. Mm -hmm. And he wanted more people to know about Skybridge, so it became the Skybridge wine party and everyone who came along to his party and drank his expensive wine, you know, was faced with the Skybridge name and that was worth it for him. Um, I write about this party for my blog and I call it the most obnoxious party in Davos because it was and he got upset at that and that was the first time that he tried to fire me. There were Various other times, but you so you years. so it's funny you so you say he's a self promoter. There's so many times where people will say to me like he's a hedge fund manager, and I'm like, wait, first of all, a fund of funds is not a hedge fund manager, and second of all, he's not managing the fund of funds. So, yeah, it, he is he isn't a hedge fund manager, and he's not even a fund of funds manager. He is just an asset accumulator. He goes on the television and tries to get his company's name in front of people so that they will give him their money. When he was trying to become part of the administration, when he was part of the administration for 10 days, is that he right? Was. 10 or 12? 10, 10, 10, 10 days. days. And, 10 uh, days in July. <laughs> Apparently he's shopping a miniseries. <laughs> uh, so 10 days in July. And theoretically he was supposed to sell this fund of funds, Skybridge, which he probably bought for pennies on the dollar when he bought it. He he bought it from Citigroup basically by taking out a mortgage from Citibank to buy it. It was a weird deal. It was a kind of very like no money down deal, but he they had to sell it because um 
of various post-financial crisis rules about divesting from certain areas. And so they just sold it to him in return for he would pay them back over time and give them some of the profits. He so goes, the, yeah, that he was, goes that and was buys the, us with borrowed money from the institution from whom he's buying it. Yeah. And, it, and, and the great thing for him was that the people who were managing the fund had actually done quite well, randomly enough. And it had a, it therefore had a good performance history. Now, that performance history had nothing to do with Anthony Scaramucci because he wasn't even there. But he could then go out and say, look at my amazing performance history. Give me all your money. And now what's poor the Mooch doing? Have you been in touch with him? He, he's weirdly not answering my tweets. Hmm, interesting. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Felix Salmon in just a minute. But, you know, I have to say uh, I am so delighted to be able to talk about end-of-year giving. And, you know, we've had a lot of conversations around what is the best way to give your charitable dollars. You heard our episode with the CEO of Charity Navigator. There's a great resource for you. I should also note that Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor, actually has a really cool way to help Betterment customers give from their investment accounts. So you may want to check that out if you are a Betterment customer, because Betterment is all about tax efficiency and helping you achieve that tax efficiency, specifically through your charitable giving. For everyone else out there, for you non-Betterment customers, here's a question for you. Are you getting as much as you can from your investments? Huh? Are you? Are you? Maybe you haven't thought about this. Maybe it's the holidays. Maybe you want to drown it all out. Too bad. I'm not going to let you. Because uh, I want to encourage you to go to Betterment and go through the free investment review, which helps you assess your investment accounts, tax strategies, fees, and risk exposure. You can see what you're doing well and how you can improve and get a better picture of what you can expect from Betterment. No sign-up required. Visit Betterment.com slash off to start your free five-minute investment review today. That's Betterment.com slash off. And now back to our interview with Felix Salmon. We look at the crisis. We look back on that. Is there something brewing that should freak us out right now that we should is there some black swan there which there is always but is there something that you see in the offing that should prick our ears up that we should pay attention to so since i've been in america we've had two big crashes um there was the big dot-com Go crash home. of 2000 <laughs> and then there was obviously the financial crisis of 2008 um the financial crisis of 2008 had many many causes, and you can argue for hours. No, come about on, let's just are. let's do the, the top but three. At heart, there were roughly two hundred and fifty billion dollars of bad subprime loans, which lenders made, and they didn't need to own, and they went bad, and it caused a bunch of ripple effects. The thing which fascinates me about that is the ripple effects were systemic and hugely damaging globally and put the entire like wiped trillions of dollars of wealth off the planet and really the whole planet hasn't really recovered 10 years later 250 billion dollars of bad assets is also weirdly the amount that the market capitalization of Cisco dropped in one day in March 2000 mm. so 
the lesson here is you can have $250,000 of wealth like blinking out of existence in the dot-com crisis and then you know a few people in San Francisco lose their jobs and a few people's 401ks go down before they go back up again and ultimately the world goes on and it's kind of no big deal you can have the same amount of wealth disappear in the mortgage part of the economy and the repercussions are just tremendous so it's not really a question of where is the money going to get lost because sometimes people lose money and it doesn't matter and sometimes people lose money and it matters a lot it it matters how much leverage there there is and basically is it rich people losing money which is fine or is it poor people losing money which is not fine so um, what do you think about the idea that the student loan debt that has emerged and the packaging of that debt, is is that a potential warning that's out there at $1.4 trillion or not? Here's my favorite factoid about student loan debt. It is going up at a rate of $100 billion a year. So it's enormous. And there's no end to how big it's going to get. And it has already had implications in terms of how um, the people who've been graduating with all of this debt are able to lead their lives, what kind of jobs they can take, what kind of houses they can buy, where they can afford to live, all of this kind of stuff. It's reshaping America in ways both good and bad. I mean, it is actually causing probably more urbanization. You know, it's not going to cause a financial crisis. I don't think that there's any real major securities-related reason to worry about the student loan situation. But as far as like encumbering a whole generation with a bunch of debt when they are at their poorest, basically, which is when you have no money, which is when you graduate from college, that just doesn't seem like good policy to me. Mm. So bad policy, bad for the country, may not cause a financial crisis. Let me give you another one. Subprime auto debt. Subprime auto debt is... Yeah, I thought that had gone away. I know, it came back. And then it came back. <laughs> and you're like, wait, who's not learning their lessons here? And now it's, and, and again, like on the policy perspective, this is dreadful. Like, this is now like subprime auto debt 2.0 is so much worse than 1.0. They put these little devices in the car, which you can be like driving down the freeway and suddenly your car like turns off because it's been repossessed and you haven't made a payment. Like, no, this is not good. And. You know, asset-backed debt is, you know, when it's backed by homes and cars is nasty because it's often that secure debt is often extended to people who can't get unsecured debt, who mean, you know, who are poorer, who are less likely to be able to pay it back. And as we have found, it's when poor people are burdened with debt and can't afford to pay it back that you start getting the really nasty economic repercussions. I think the one thing I just really want to emphasize here is let's worry about the important things, which is, you know, how is the economy going to be able to tick along? How are the people who are struggling going to be able to make money, make ends meet? And that's much, much more important than is the stock market going to go down? Are investors going to lose money on their bond portfolios? Like, I could really care less about that. Mm-hmm. I love that you say that. You know, you, you look from the, the bigger landscape, and that's why I like you talking about that student loan debt is bad for society. It probably isn't going to cause a financial crisis. How do you feel about what's going on in the economy right now? So we're, you know, we're 
poking around, let's say that this year we were two and a quarter percent annualized. I had run into, you know what I do is basically I stalk people in the CBS green room. So I meet them there and then I, I they're stuck with me. And then I get to ask them a question. I'm like, this is off the record, but I want to ask you a question. So I asked Ben Bernanke, I said, have we become Japan? He goes, what's wrong with Japan? Japan's doing just fine. That's literally what he said. He goes, there's no way this economy can grow faster than two or two and a half percent simply because of number one, productivity, number two, population. So Japan is a really fascinating place. And I, I, and I totally, totally understand what he's saying. Um, you know, it has a debt to GDP ratio of what, 250% or something. And apparently we're not allowed to go over 90 or we all hit a crisis. Exactly. Like, and Japan is like, you know, exhibit A and why that's not true. So Japan proves that debt isn't particularly bad. The interesting thing about Japan is it doesn't have a huge amount of inequality. It has a population which is shrinking. Right. So it doesn't need a lot of GDP growth in order to get decent per capita GDP growth. If you have a con- con- uh, population which is growing, like the United States, then you need faster growth in order for any individual person or the average individual person to see the benefits of that growth. Much more important than GDP growth, though, is the distribution of that growth. And historically, for most of the 20th century, when America had GDP growth, the fruits of that would go to the middle classes. They wouldn't go to the bottom end of the economic spectrum, and especially African-Americans who really got left out for most of the 20th century. And that was something which the country really hasn't made up for uh, and needs to. But equally, they didn't go to the very top end either. And in recent years, what we've seen is all of the gains going to the top, the amount of inequality in America going up year after year after year with no end in sight. And if that's what you're going to do with GDP growth, I'm like, well, no, thank you. I don't want that kind of GDP growth. I want people to do better. I want Americans to become better off. And trying to come up with policies which will help normal people rather than policies which will help rich people, which is another way of saying people with money in the stock market, you know, is is kind of, I think, where people should be concentrating. So again, if the stock market goes down, what does that mean? It means rich people get poorer. That's actually okay. It also means that if you are working right now and if you're saving for retirement, you're really happy because all of those stocks are cheap and you get to buy them cheap. And it's much better to buy stocks low than it is to buy them high. Anyone who is still working and is going to be working for another decade or two should love it if stocks go down. I say always root for a correction, root for a bear market. If you right. got the time, rock on, right? So in looking at anything out there that keeps you up at night, what is it? Is it is this income inequality the piece that like freaks you out? Do you, like Because I've thought so much about this. You know, when that Piketty study comes out and they, they update it and then they try to figure out you know, income inequality in France and Germany and U.S. And you look at the numbers and it's it feels so depressing, but also that nobody's really figuring out how to address this in a way that's meaningful or at least the American population doesn't vote for people who want to do that. What is it that's going to get us out of this cycle? Okay, so there's a really simple answer to that, um, which is that as Piketty has shown, there's a bunch of structural forces in the global economy, which have only got stronger in recent years, 
which tend to exacerbate inequality and make it worse and worse and worse year in and year out. So what do you do? The answer is you redistribute. You tax the rich and you give the money to the poor. And no one wants to hear that, right? And it, But just, by the way, going through, like, the very American lens, you know, I go on TV and I talk about Hurricane Harvey and everyone's like, how, oh, we have to take care of these people, we have to take care of these people. Well, the proposed budget was going to cut $700 million from FEMA. So you want to take care of everybody only when there's a crisis or do you want to take care of everybody all the time? When do you want to take care of people? And that's the question I like put out there. Like, I only care about the government when I need the government. It can't be like this. Well, I mean, it's like Ted Cruz, who doesn't want to take care of flood victims if they're in New Jersey in Hurricane <laughs> Sandy, but who does if they're in Texas in Hurricane Harvey. Well, now they're Harvey. Texans. Exactly. I see. So, yeah, it, it, there's, there's a bunch of, hypo- you know, breaking <laughs> politicians <laughs> are hypocrites. But, um, but yeah, you, you need to care about these things day in, day out on the structural level by taking the people who are lucky enough to do well in the economy and saying, well, good for you, but like, let's just take some of the fruits of that success and redistribute it to people who, for a bunch of really good reasons, haven't been able to be so fortunate. Even Lloyd Blankfein said that the middle class has to do well for the economy to improve. I mean, basically, we have to like lift everyone up from like sort of the first three quintiles down, like if they lift up, that will improve economic growth for everyone. The marginal propensity to spend an extra dollar is extremely high if you're poor. If, if, if you have no money and I give you a dollar, you will spend 100% of that dollar. If you're Lloyd Blankfein and I give you a dollar, you'll go, this is great. What the hell am I meant to do with this? So if you want to cause economic activity in the country, what you do is you funnel the money to the poor who will spend it rather than to the rich who will not spend it. This is economics 101. This is not rocket science. So absolutely, you need to be able to get that money flowing not just to the middle classes, but also to the poor. And then if you do that, that will help the entire economy. And I've now elected you president. Thank you very much. And I'm honored to serve. Very good. Let's do your last question. We started with your best financial decision, which was buying a MacBook. Now just tell us your worst financial decision. Oh, yes. Well, I... (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, The very recent one was I just bought an apartment. And I think every time anyone buys an apartment, it comes with a bunch of bad financial decisions. But this one involved a complete gut renovation, and I got very excited about that. Oh. I wound up spending an insane amount of money on really stupid things, which in hindsight, I'm like, why did I spend all of that money on, like, tiles for my bedroom? The one thing which I would highly recommend that no one listening to this podcast ever spend money on is a centralized home automation system. Wait a minute. It's an apartment in the city? Yeah. How how big is it? I mean, how centralized it's, must you need? It's it's 1,300 square feet. Okay. And I have an app on my phone, which basically controls the entire apartment. Well, okay, except that you can just walk into another room and turn the lights off. Exactly. Mm, interesting. Do that. Mm-hmm. Don't try and put it all on one app. If you want to just put the lights on an app and you can, you know, as long as you can always have light switches, you know, 
Light then switches are great. Light switches are awesome. I believe in light switches. I used to like cranking my window on my car, frankly. I, I don't these, love automatic windows. I got these ridiculously expensive um, LED lights called from this company in Austin, Texas called Ketra, which are the best lights in the world, mm. and they're amazing. Don't get Ketra lights. No. You actually get much more... Much better stuff and much more reliable stuff if you just go completely mainstream, something which a million thing people have bought before you, which has been tried and tested and has worked its way through the marketplace. The high-end stuff is all crazy labor-intensive and, and a nightmare. Don't buy a Ferrari either. That's according to Felix Salmon. Don't buy a Ferrari, says Felix Salmon. Although Fe- I have got this like, idea that I want a Rolls-Royce, but that will just break down. You know what they say about Rolls-Royces, right? What's that? If you can't afford an expensive one, you certainly can't afford a cheap one. <laughs> Felix Salmon, editor of Cause and Effect. Download the Slate Money podcast. Felix is the host. He's phenomenal. He's adorable. And uh, I'm so delighted that you joined us. I really appreciate it. It was loads of fun. Thanks to Felix Salmon. And next week, we're going to get back to answering your questions. Just send us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Don't forget, we've got our bonus episode that comes out on Tuesdays and the longer form every single Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag betteroff. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week.